Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates Art of Living interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and we are celebrating Pride Month as part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series. We have returning guests and show favorites, Sarah Clito and Brittany Warman back with us. I'll reintroduce Sarah and Brittany in just a moment. But quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 720th episode when I spoke with Dr. Jennifer Dill, a professor of urban studies and planning and director of the Transportation Research and Education Center known as TREK at Portland State University. We discussed all things e-bikes. Two weeks ago, I spoke with Smithsonian Associate Science writer Jennifer Ackerman, author of the new book, What an Owl Knows, the New Science of the World's Most Enigmatic Bird. Excellent subjects for our Not Old Better show audience here on radio and podcast. If you missed those shows, along with any others, you can go back and check them out, along with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. You can Google Not Old Better and get everything you need about us. What is the power of fairy tales? Fairy tales have a reputation for being conventional, and many of the most famous fairy tales appear, on the surface at least, to be just that. Tales like Cinderella and Snow White famously end with dazzlingly beautiful girls marrying princes, and others like Jack and the Beanstalk reward boys for their bravery and brashness with wealth and power. However, beginning as early as the 1970s, feminist fairy tale scholars have pointed out tales and readings that complicate those conventions, and now researchers and writers are expanding on these beginnings to explore fairy tales' queer possibilities. Once used to mean strange or eccentric, later wielded as a slur against homosexuality and eventually reclaimed by activists and scholars, the word queer can simply mean different than expected. Folklorists Sarah Clito and Brittany Warman will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates coming up. You'll want to check our website as well as the Smithsonian Associates website for more details, but we have Sarah and Brittany today talking about just those subjects. Sarah Clito and Brittany Warman will share with us some very old and very unconventional fairy tales and discuss modern LGBTQ plus twists on old tales and traditions from a little known 12th century and possibly even older version of Snow White to literary fairy tales being written now. Learn how fairy tales can be surprisingly inclusive and wonderfully disruptive to our expectations. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, folklorists, and Smithsonian Associates, Sarah Clito and Brittany Warman. Well, good. It's great to talk to you both, Sarah Clito, Brittany Warman. Welcome back to the program. I love talking to you guys, and so this is going to be fun, but but welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. We we love talking to you. Thank you for having us back. Yeah, I get really excited about the work that you do because I, you know, Brittany, I was was telling Sarah, I I love what I do because I get to learn. And this was one of those subjects that really caught my attention. Some of it has to do with the title. Of course, the just your, your general work is always interesting to me. We'll get into all of that. But why don't we start by just... Maybe both of you just kind of do a stereo on 
on what you're going to be talking about uh, at your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Um, you're going to be using Zoom. We're all on Zoom these days. So maybe tell us how you'll engage us all and uh, what you'll be saying briefly. Sure. So um, we uh, we love fairy tales. It's, it's our first love in folklore, and we have studied them extensively. But we are very well aware that they have a reputation for being pretty conventional and sometimes even, you know, just putting forward uh, really bad ideas about how men and women should be. So our talk on that that is upcoming, we're going to talk about how on the surface fairy tales really do appear to reinforce gender stereotypes, to be very heteronormative, to be concerned, you know, boys are supposed to be uh, concerned with bravery and, you know, attaining wealth and power while girls are supposed to be objects to be one um, that are extremely beautiful. And so we're, we're looking to sort of explode those stereotypes and thinking about how people have changed the sort of conventional stories about fairy tales and retold them in more recent times, but then also how fairy tales have always been a little bit uh, subversive. Yeah. um, Like Brittany said, fairy tales really have this reputation for being profoundly conservative, for kind of reinscribing the status quo, like telling us to behave in very rigid ways. But the thing is, they they really don't do that, or at least they don't have to do that. Um, It always sort of, it, it shocks a lot of people when we tell them that, Fairy tales actually don't have to have morals. Actually, very few fairy tales have morals at all. And they definitely can be used to, you know, educate kids or try to, you know, teach kind of like to instill possible morals or or codes of behavior or something. But they also can just be taught, they, they can be told to entertain, they can be told to shock, and they can also have very rebellious or subversive or progressive messages. They can do all of this, and they kind of have always done all of this. The idea that um, fairy tales are for children actually really wasn't a thing until like the 1800s. And before that, people perceived them much more as a kind of entertainment that was for adults. So if you think about it that way, you'll realize, oh, like they, they probably are all over the place. They probably have a lot of, um, you know, content that's, you know, maybe not appropriate for children or that can do, you know, many, like can have many different kinds of agendas or really no agenda at all, depending on the teller, depending on the story. So basically what we really want to get across is, is that fairy tales are so incredibly flexible. There's room for literally everyone and everything in the form of the fairy tale. Thank you. That's that's really helpful. I, I appreciate you know all of that because I for me, I of course am older and and I much of my fairy tale experience is rooted in kind of the the childhood orientation of of fairy tales. So all of this was really just fascinating to me. And it, as you guys were telling the story, I was thinking, God, I, you know the the title "Gender, Sexuality, and the Fairy Tale" is is a great one. I mean, I think that that says so much about what you guys are going to be talking about. But I wonder if you just tell us, maybe, you know, just springing off of off of your last answers, maybe just give us a couple of examples about of, of what fairy tales might 
you know, represent to adults and how we might have missed some of this because we've been focused on the aspect of of fairy tales being for children or maybe we've focused on the fairy tales that that were very plainly morality messages about bravery or some of those other conventional subjects. Sure. Um, Brittany, do you want to take a first stab at this? Sure. So when, when I was listening to your question, I was thinking about probably the easiest way to jump into the topic of, of gender and sexuality and the fairy tale is to think about the fairy tales that feature women in particular. So in a lot of the most famous fairy tales, we're thinking like Cinderella or Snow White or Sleeping Beauty, the main female character in those stories is very, very beautiful, but that's usually her only clear trait. Yeah, that's like about it a lot of the that's time. About it. Yeah, so she's she's she sometimes may be kind or um industrious or something like that. But most of the time the most important thing about her is that she's beautiful and often these stories revolve around how she gets rescued in some way. So how she gets woken up from a enchanted sleep or how she ascends to be a princess or something like that. And these are the stories that we, most of us have grown up with. They're the ones that are very, very popular, but they're the ones that have been anthologized and told and retold over again. Mm -hmm. But like, there are so many other ones though, that don't necessarily follow those patterns. And I'm going to shut up now and let Brittany keep saying. No, no, you can jump in anytime. That's what I was going to say though. There are a bunch of stories that, are fairy tales too that just don't follow those conventions. They're just not the ones that were canonized, the ones that became very popular. And after, you know, um, feminist scholars sort of got their hands on this and, and started thinking about it and looking for tales that were different, it became clear that not only were there fairy tales out there where there were really active female characters, there were characters that were, uh, you know, women characters that did a lot of of stuff and were quite, uh, had a lot of their own agency. Um, But it also became clear that fairy tales themselves weren't always as conventional as we like to assume, or maybe not like to assume, but that we have assumed for many, many years because the ones that got really popular were the ones that sort of fit these heteronormative ideas about marriage being happily ever after, about women being passive, about men being brave and going out to to fight and things like that. But there are so many fairy tales in the world and so many of those stories actually embrace much broader worldviews. So while everything sort of started with looking at the ways that women appear in these stories, people with all, all different kinds of people appear in fairy tales. And some of them are ones that we just weren't really exposed to. And part of what Sarah and I love to do in talks like about gender and sexuality in the fairy tale is point out these stories that have, for example, uh, queer undertones that are really important to bring out. Or sometimes are extremely obvious. Like there's a fairy tale or actually a whole family of fairy tales that are, it's hundreds of years old. And the sort of folkloristic title for this group of stories is The Woman Who Became a Man. 
And in a lot of versions of that story, like a a woman um, like has to dress up as a soldier, like there's usually some kind of reason that she's impersonating a man, at least that's what seems to be happening at the beginning of the story. But then she eventually, you know, like succeeds in the wars and goes on to marry a princess. And then in most of the stories, she's like magically transformed into a man at the end of the story. Sometimes that's not actually how it ends. Sometimes the woman is, you know, like revealed as a woman and like she kind of gets to go back to, you know, whatever her life was before in some capacity. But this whole category of stories is often very like celebratory. I think, you know, I mean, first of all, people just don't expect this story to be like a traditional fairy tale, a traditional folk tale. But the woman or, you know, the man by the end of a lot of the stories is very heroic and, you know, is very much like the protagonist of the story is celebrated. And that's a version, that's one fairy tale we love to point to when people are like, well, like fairy tales are always about girls acting, you know, passive or pretty (laughs) and having no other characteristics. And we're like, have you seen these stories? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And so that's a great example of of a story that, yeah, is is quite explicitly queer. But there are other other things that pop up in fairy tales, too. Um, For example, there's a very old medieval version of Snow White that we're going to talk about during the talk for sure. But the end is essentially a a polyamorous relationship. Hmm. And there are, you know, there are other stories that if you, you know, if you look at them right, could be stories about, you know, lesbian love affairs, about uh, sort of shedding the idea of gender entirely in order to um, become who you're meant to be. There are all kinds of stories that just, just don't fit the conventions. Yeah. Even ones that feel much more familiar, like Cinderella. Um, even if we look at the grim version of Cinderella, which, unlike most other grim fairy tales, is not actually the most famous version of Cinderella, the versions that we get now are mostly based on the French version by Perrault. But in the grim version, we still see a very like active Cinderella figure who's like yes. running around and climbing trees and conjuring up her own dresses using something that honestly looks a lot like witchcraft. <laughs> and a lot of the structure of the story still kind of looks like the Cinderella that we recognize. But this Cinderella is not playing by the conventional rules, like restrictive rules of what gender usually looks like. So we can find, you know, all kinds of really real variation in terms of what gender can look like, what sexuality can look like from our most familiar fairy tales all the way to ones that just aren't canonized and that people rarely look at. Hmm. So what are some of the assumptions that that are made about gender uh, in fairy tales? Well, one of them I feel like definitely is that the girls, especially princesses, are just incredibly passive, Hmm. that their only like value, their currency is their beauty, and that getting married is the end goal. I feel like that's like the assumption. And that, of course, you know, the boys or the princes are heroic and champions, and they go out and they kill things with swords, and they win the princesses and, you know, wake them up. And then they marry them as their reward. And like, sure, that definitely does happen in many of our most familiar fairy tales. 
but that's definitely not always how it goes. Um, as in, you know, several of the fairy tales we've mentioned already. Um, but even if we look at something like Little Red Riding Hood, like which seems like a story that, you know, kind of fits these assumptions in some way. There's, you know, a girl who, you know, doesn't know any better and doesn't take care of herself and then gets like eaten up because she um, she violated the interdiction. She broke the, the right. taboo. She wanders off the path. But in the end of some versions of that fairy tale, after she's been you know rescued once by the woodcutter, she's able to take out wolves herself. Like she and her grandmother like are able to kill the next wolf that tries to eat them. And that's, you know, kind of an ending of the story that's usually cut off. And that's, again, you know, pretty active. That's not um, that's not like a passive fairy tale girl stereotype behavior. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with Brittany Warman and Sarah Clito. They're returning guests to the program. They are Smithsonian Associates who will be presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up June 20th. We'll put links so that our audience can find out more about the presentation titled Gender, Gender, Sexuality, and the Fairy Tale. Brittany Warman and Sarah Clito are co-founders of the Carter Haas School of Folklore and the Fantastic. They're folklorists. We're talking today about just a fascinating subject. I, I, I want to go back. Brittany, you used the word queer. And that's a word that it has gone through some changes. Uh, Absolutely. Over, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And so it at one time, I think probably was looked at as being a, a slur. And, and it has some bearing on the world of, of, of fairy tales. I wonder if you'd talk to us a little bit about some of the stereotypes and perhaps even slurs that come from, you know, this world of fairy tales. Sure. So, yes, I used that word. Um, In academic studies, it is a word that has definitely been reclaimed, I think. Mm -hmm. It's a word that, you know, you're absolutely right, was used as a slur in the past and now really applies to a whole area of of studies of various things. You can apply queer studies to a lot of of different areas, but within the context of fairy tale studies, what we usually like to do is turn to Kay Turner and Pauline Greenhill, who are two fairy tale scholars that we really love. They put together an excellent collection called Transgressive Tales Queering the Grimms. And in in that book, it is the the idea behind the essays included is that within the context of Grimm's fairy tales specifically, but really fairy tales writ large, is that the queer lens can be used in order to think about not just the um, you know sexes and sexualities beyond the mainstream things that deviate from the norm or the so-called norm, but rather that 
a, a broader conception of the word queer that as they put it, um, we wrote this down because we wanted to be sure to get it right, um, <laughs> that addresses concerns about marginalization, oddity, and not fitting into society generally, and embraces more than sex, gender, sexuality to deal with the problematics of those who, for various reasons, find themselves outside conventional practices. So within the world of fairy tale studies, this, this term queer is used more broadly, but it it usually does have have something to do with gender and sexuality. And we we love this definition because it opens up this way of looking at fairy tales that most people don't, you know, really think about. And we think that it needs to be think thought and think. It needs to be thought about more. <laughs> yeah, it's really a way of centering things that are often perceived as marginal, things that are sometimes right. perceived as personal, um, as like the focal points of what you're thinking through in these fairy tales. So uh, there's just been there's been a lot of work done in the last couple of decades about gender in the fairy tale, sexuality in the fairy tale, like merging queer theory with the fairy tale. And definitely for people who want to learn more in addition to coming to our talk, we definitely recommend, um, reading the book that Brittany just mentioned, um, Transgressive Tales, Queering the Grimms, because it, it's just really brilliant. It looks at a lot of um, a lot of old tales, including some that we've already mentioned, like historical fairy tales, but also some contemporary media. And we definitely want to mention that there are so many writers and creators out there now who are retelling or writing their own fairy tales that are very explicitly queer in different ways um, that have LGBT plus protagonists or other characters and doing just like incredible and really important work expanding, you know, what fairy tales can contain and what they can be. And some of them that we'll probably talk about during the talk, but that we definitely want to mention. One of our favorites is called Cinderella is Dead hmm. by Kaylin Bayron. And it is amazing it's so good it's so cool it's a like lesbian retelling of cinderella but it does just the most incredible work with thinking through like the value of a fairy tale mm -hmm. within like the world of this novel hmm. cinderella was like a historical figure but ideas about what this historical figure was like have calcified into gender norms and gender rules that govern everybody who lives in this kingdom. Mm -hmm. It is fascinating. Mm -hmm. So it takes a lot of stuff that I think is very um, implicit about how fairy tales are supposed to operate and makes them explicit while simultaneously writing a lesbian romance through the lens of Cinderella. It's great stuff. Mm -hmm. And there are really so is. many, mm -hmm. yeah, there's so many other authors who are also doing like similar amazing work out there. And we just think that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do too. I, and I think it's really, it, it is cool. It, it's, it's wonderful. I, it, it's important work that you're doing. And I hope, I hope you see it that way. I, I mean, in my mind, I, I, I look at, at, you know, the gap that all of us are struggling to, to kind of overcome between you know, the political statements that are going on in Florida about, you know, don't say gay bill and all yeah. of this other. You're really starting this conversation, I think, from a perspective of 
the fairy tale, which I think is just is brilliant because it's almost a very it's very unique. It is very special. I hope you guys do see it that way. But I imagine you probably do feel like this is a a good step to take in getting people started on this overall subject. Yeah, um, I I think this is more important than ever to Mm -hmm. be thinking about, you know, the fact that fairy tales have always been inclusive and Mm -hmm. that they're getting even more so now. I have heard someone else say, I can't get credit for it. I think it it might have been Natalie Wynn who said this, but that a lot of the um, legislation that's being passed right now in Florida and elsewhere is really an attempt to legislate, um, you know, LGBT plus people kind of out of existence by erasing them from public spaces and schools and stuff like that, which is absolutely horrifying. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that thinking about like the narratives of fairy tales of personal narrative is a way of, in some small way, at least trying to take up more space again of showing, no, no, like these people, um, these identities, but really these people exist and have always existed. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. stories are so powerful, I think, for fostering understanding, for creating a sense of shared humanity. And I, I think that by using something like the fairy tale Mm -hmm. to show this, um, that that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. I 100% agree with everything you just said, Sarah, that was beautifully put. I feel like with, with the fairy tale too, you're starting from a place that pretty much everybody in the West uh, understands, you know, you, you're exposed to fairy tales so much, pretty much, you know, you would be very hard pressed to find somebody in America who hadn't, who had no idea who Cinderella was Mm -hmm. and the, the way that they've just been incorporated into our culture often in, in ways that we don't even really realize having them be a vehicle to talk about conversations that might be difficult for some people, I think is a, is a good way in. Yeah. 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 Starting from a place of shared understanding. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You guys just do some amazing things. I've always enjoyed talking to you. So maybe this is my final question for you again. I I know you guys are both very busy and I sure appreciate your time, but what's next? What's next for you both? What's next for the Carter Haas School of Folklore and the Fantastic? And how do we take this subject of gender, sexuality, and fairy tales kind of to that next step? Because we would love to have you back and talk more about this important subject so that we can all get a a deeper connection about inclusion and deeper understanding and um, making sure that, you know, we're all looked at as people. Oh, thank you. And we're we're so happy to be back and, and talking to you um, mm. about fairy tales and how awesome they are yeah. once again. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> um, as for what's next, I we're... We're always cooking up something. Yeah, <laughs> something you, guys are all, you guys are um, always very busy. <laughs> I I think um, if we're allowed to say this. I think our next talk at the Smithsonian after this is going to be on Gothic fairy tales, ah, great. which is we'll have you back. one of our. We would love to. Yeah, that is one of our like favorite favorite topics. Also, I feel like we say that about everything, but it really is true <laughs> for the Gothic and. 
in some ways, I think it really dovetails with a lot of what we've been talking about today, because the Gothic is another category that is often considered to be or perceived to be extremely conservative about reinstating the status quo, keeping, you know, power concentrated where it has always been concentrated. Overcoming monstrosity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, a lot of Gothic literature actually is a lot more complicated and can open up so many spaces for subversion, for transgression, for different ways of seeing the world and reconstructing the world. So we're excited to talk about that again. Anything you want to add to that one, Brittany? Yeah, with the with, with gothic fairy tales, I think one of the best things about them is that people are excited about them at first because they're like, oh, you know, we're going to talk about fairy tales. And we know that, you know, once upon a time, a long time ago, they were they were much scarier than the way that we see them now. <laughs> and that seems to be an idea that goes around. And in some ways, that's true. And that is, you know, a way of connecting fairy tales in the Gothic. But I also think it's it's just fascinating to go back into these tales and see how these stories that have been so sanitized in the world that we live in now can be these stories that tackle really deep and complex and subversive and fantastic issues in ways that are really surprising. And I mean, this is, I think, why Sarah and I always come back to fairy tales because they have such potential. They do. Yeah. It's such a cool ditch. And, And I just, I love talking to you both about this. I look forward to gothic fairy tales coming up next, but of course, Brittany Warman, Sarah Clito, so good to talk to you guys again. We look forward to your upcoming presentation titled Gender, Sexuality, and the Fairy Tale. And thanks, guys, for this work. Really, I mean that. And um, I look forward to talking to you again. But uh, please be well and um, stay in touch with me because I know our audience is going to be excited to hear more. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you so much. <laughs> My thanks to folklorists, Smithsonian Associates. Sarah Clito and Brittany Warman. Sarah Clito and Brittany Warman will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. So please check out our show notes or the Smithsonian Associates website directly for more details. You'll find that all in our show notes today. My thanks, of course, always to the wonderful Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks always to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well and be safe. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody. We will see you next week.